This is Archive Atlanta, episode 102, Federal Penitentiary. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. If you've been listening from the very beginning, you may remember episode six, which I titled Behind Bars. In it, I tried to cover the history of the city's stockade, uh, the federal penitentiary, and the prison farm, which is a lot. And this was before I had access to any of the research materials that I have now, so my information was mainly from third-party internet sources. The truth is, each of these places could and should be its very own episode. I have also gone back and forth with the idea of re-recording some of the earlier episodes, but No decisions made, but we are going to start with today, which is I am going to do a solo episode solely about the history of the federal penitentiary. Why is it in Atlanta? When was it built? Who were its most notorious prisoners? And all of the other little details. Before we start today, I do want to make a public service announcement of sorts. Uh, Incarceration, the prison system, even the federal prison system are all important topics that need their own episodes, and I do have plans in the future for episodes about Atlanta's police departments, about police violence, and others. What I'm trying to say is that we're just talking about one specific place inside the city of Atlanta and leaving out a lot of nuance on the larger topic at hand. Before the Three Prisons Act was signed, which we'll get to, any and all federal prisoners were incarcerated in state penitentiaries. This becomes an issue for several reasons, one of which is that the state facilities do not take the imprisoned for free, and the second is that some are beginning to refuse specific prisoners. In 1889, the U.S. Attorney General expresses his concerns and he suggests creating a prison bureau within the Justice Department. Not only could the government then build its own prisons, but it could also collect data on crime. One year after this idea, Congress received a bill to establish two federal penitentiaries. The idea was to locate them in each judicial division. The bill was later amended to build three prisons. So there would be one in the south, one in the north, and one west of the Rocky Mountains. Georgia was a strong location choice for the Southern Penitentiary, as they had just passed a law saying that county jailers can be sole deciders of whether to accept U.S. prisoners or not. Basically, without a federal facility here, no federal prisoners were going to be housed in the state. In 1891, the Three Prisons Act was signed by President McKinley, which authorized the building of these three prisons. There was one in Leavenworth, Kansas, one in Atlanta, Georgia, and one on McNeil Island in Washington State. Now, before Atlanta was chosen, several Georgia cities vied for this prison, among them Augusta, Dalton, and later Rome. And you may be wondering, as I did, why would you want a federal prison in your city? Like, was that really a draw? But it was. Um, First, there was the issue of already housing federal convicts, which the Fulton County Jail had 75 to 100 men in their facility in 1889. Convict leasing was on its way out, uh, and so officials had anxiety about prison overcrowding. But there was also job creation, so a prison needs guards, staff, construction workers. And another fact that I found really interesting was that there was a concern about imprisoned men and how they fared in northern facilities. So, I mean, southern imprisoned men. 
there had been deaths due to cold weather and the distinctly different northern climate. And so the thought was that it was more progressive and humane to place people in a prison in a climate where they were accustomed to. Now, Atlanta wanted this badly, and Mayor Collier fought hard, going as far as to promise that the city would donate the land to make it happen. Uh, Mayor Woodward, though, succeeds Mayor Collier, and but he was on board as well, and he appoints a special selection committee to figure out where this jail is going to go. The final location decision was really up to U.S. Attorney General Griggs, but he came to Atlanta in 1899 with his crew to survey the sites. The Central Railroad had donated or offered to donate 300 acres for free. There was also a site called the Dickey Place. It was described as being out Capitol Avenue where South Boulevard enters McDonough, but this was going to cost $75,000 to purchase. There was also uh, a property called the Nathan Lyon property near the Chattahoochee pumping station. And then there was the Houston land tract in DeKalb and a Mason site on Peachtree Creek. Now, the only two real contenders in the eyes of the press and everybody involved were the Dickey site and the Central Railroad sites. Now, although free is very appealing, the rail site did not have a water line. So installing that line would have cost tens of thousands of dollars. So in May of that year, 1899, the Dickey site was chosen. Just a month later, preliminary architectural plans were presented by Ames and Young, who had also done the famous St. Louis Arch. And a few months later, Ames would come to Atlanta to survey the quarries at both Stone Mountain and Lithonia and the brickyards. At that point, they didn't know what material they wanted to use, but he knew that using local abundant materials was going to keep the cost down. Now, because President McKinley had recently extended the civil service rules um, to prison wardens, physicians, and chaplains, there were a lot of applications, especially for prison chaplain. It was a relatively new position, so nobody quite knew what they were signing up for. The only one that existed in the country was at the prison in Leavenworth, um, and that guy made $1,500 a year, so, you know, it was a pretty good job for someone. The Three Prisons Act only appropriated $500,000 for each prison's construction. It also added $100,000 for various workshops on the property. And then there was $15,000 put aside for incidentals. Now, the lowest bid received to build Atlanta uh, from a contractor out of St. Louis was like $50,000 over what the government was going to appropriate. And so Georgia Congressman Livingston asked Congress to divert another $115,000 to the project. Um, this finally made it able to be built. So by May of 1900, they put a spur railroad track to the site in order to bring materials. And then by October, the Atlanta Railway and Power Company built a new line to the federal prison. Today, you can still see and drive over those railroad tracks, so that's kind of unique to think about when those were put in and for what reason. In 1901, construction of the federal penitentiary was underway, and so the warden from Leavenworth comes to help consult with the cell placement. Now, the cells themselves were made by Stewart Ironworks from Cincinnati, uh, and they came specially and separate. Now, they were delayed, so construction here in Atlanta came to a halt until they were arrived. By October of 1901, Judge Newman had already sentenced five men to the not-yet-opened federal pen. Two were convicted of distilling, one of counterfeiting, one of robbery, and one of violating pension laws. Four months later, in February of 1902, the gates would open. 
The title of warden was given to an out-of-towner, Samuel Hawk, but the deputy warden was held by Georgian H.B. Anderson. The prison surgeon or physician was Dr. J.C. Swan from Alabama, and then they quickly filled 15 positions for guards and night watchmen with all local Atlanta men. Seven prisoners were brought over from the tower, which was the jail in downtown Atlanta, and that was it. Just no ceremonies, you know, no dedications. The federal penitentiary was open for business. A few weeks later, the chaplain position was filled by Reverend Dr. Tullis Tupper, who was assistant rector of St. Luke's, and he was previously an army chaplain in the Spanish-American War. In the first opening month, the northern prisoners arrived, so really the first that were not taken from the tower or from nearby counties, and it made really big news in the city. There was 21 men from Albany, 10 from Sing Sing, and 6 from Brooklyn. One month later, we have our first escape. Mr. R.H. East, or prisoner number 82, was a barber in the prison basement. He's serving a 15-year sentence for burglary out in Indian country, which is the West. While working, he noticed that the bars on one of the windows wasn't properly installed and could be slid upward. So when the guard leaves him alone for just a minute, he slips out. They ring the bell, which notifies Atlanta police, and everyone is freaking out. And he's gone for weeks, so people see him in Lakewood, they see him behind Clark College, which is today the new school's a carver, He's seen indicator. He's stolen random articles of clothing. So he stole like a boy's coat, but then he also had his white barber coat. So a lot of local residents talk about seeing this out of place man with a white coat, like running through their yards. He also sounds like quite a character. Uh, he had a woman tattooed on his left forearm. He had the bust of a woman on his right arm and he had a nude woman on one leg. And then I think a baby on the other. Don't know the story of that one. Um, there was a $60 reward offered, which was an amount mandated by the federal government. If you adjust it for inflation, it's about $1,700 today, which is you know not a little bit of money, but not a lot. So there's frustration from the warden because he couldn't offer more. You know, you were only allowed to offer what the U.S. government was allowing you to. According to the Bertillion system, East was a very bad man. Um, to wrap this up, he was found several months later. I think it was like Mississippi or Alabama, and he was brought back to prison. But I want to go back to the Bertillion method and then how that was used. Invented by French criminologist Alphonse Bertillon in 1879, it was a technique for describing people based on their physical measurement. They would measure your height, uh, your head size, the distance between your fingertips. And this was like early identification. So before fingerprints, they would catalog you and identify you this way. And Bertillion's photographs were actually the first mugshots. So later be called mugshots, but um, taking the forward facing photo and then the side profile photo, this is the man who started it and that's how we still do it today. In 1902, one of Bertillion's mentees, his name was Matthew McClary, came to the federal penitentiary in Atlanta to begin cataloging all of the prisoners there. At the same time he was there, the wall encircling the facility was being planned. So if you drive by today, um, you do see the wall that's behind kind of the outer fence. That was expected to cost half a million dollars to build. It was going to enclose 20 acres, and it was supposed to be 80 feet high and 12 feet wide. Um, it would be lined with six sentry stations, and the work was going to be mainly completed by convicts. When it was actually constructed a year later, those dimensions shrunk just a little bit. So I found notes that said it was 18 high in some places, 13 high in others. Um, you can even see it with your own eyes. It's definitely not 80 feet high today. 
Now, local contractors were hired for this work, and then as part of the job, they also threw in the warden's house. And a lot of people wonder about the houses that line the penitentiary property. And actually, there was someone asked me a question on Instagram. This is how this whole idea for this episode began. Um, when you look at the Sanborn maps of that area, the surveyors were not allowed on the penitentiary property. They actually say, like, no access granted, and they are drawing the homes, you know, just from what they can see with their own eyes, we do know which house was the warden's house, um, exactly, and then we can assume that the other statelier homes were for the assistant wardens or other top officials. So if you're coming down Boulevard and you make a right at the traffic light, uh, the first large house on the left was the warden's house. It was originally a 14-room brick structure. They also built at that same time a barn, a blacksmith shop, carpenter shop, um, storehouse, and a stonecutter facility. So I don't know exactly which one of those are left. If you travel to the left at the traffic light, there's a lot of looks like 60s kind of bungalows. Um, I'm assuming those would be for guards. They're much smaller and much simpler. So we can't talk about the federal prison history without mentioning its most infamous inmates. Ignazio Lupo fled Sicily when he was 12. He lived in New York City, where he formed the Morello crime family. And if you're a fan of the Godfather movies, that's the character of Don Finucci, or the Black Hand, was modeled after Lupo. He did not serve prison time until he was arrested for counterfeiting in 1910. So he heads to Atlanta to write out his 10-year sentence. Now, Carlo Ponzi, the man that the Ponzi scheme was named after, was actually serving his sentence at the same time as Lupo, and so rumor is that he served as a translator for him. Also at the same time as these two was Charles Morse, who in 1910 was known as the Ice King because of his control of New York City's ice business. There was lots of rumors that he was conducting business from inside the penitentiary by long-distance telephone, and Warden Moyer released a statement saying, quote, the federal pen is not a clearinghouse for any business by any of its wards. Mrs. Morse and his son lived in Atlanta when he was imprisoned here, and um, she often stayed at the Piedmont Hotel. There was David Lamar, who was called the Wolf of Wall Street. He was imprisoned in 1916. His wife and children also lived in Atlanta when he was here. Anarchist Alexander Berkman, who was arrested um, with the famous Emma Goldman, he was transferred here in 1917. In 1920, Eugene V. Debs enters the penitentiary to serve his 10-year sentence for violation of the Espionage Act. So while he is in Atlanta, he actually runs for presidential candidate for the Socialist Party. And when the Socialist Party had its state convention in Atlanta, 50 members visited the penitentiary to go visit Debs in prison. We cannot forget our most famous, probably, right, Al Capone, who arrived in Atlanta in 1932. Details about him and his life behind bar were heavily guarded. As you can imagine, that the press wanted any little tidbit they could get to share with the outside world. Guards were actually barred from even pointing him out to visitors, like family members seeing other people. Um, he was only authorized to speak with his wife, who did live in Atlanta, same, same as everybody else. She was living here when he was incarcerated. Um, there was one story in the paper, I think it was whenever someone left the prison, they would interview them about Capone. Like, what's he like? You know, what did, how did he eat? What, where did he do? And so silly stories, like instead of baseball on Saturdays, he liked to watch movies. 
Now, speaking of baseball, in 1911, the Department of Justice declared Saturday a year-round prison holiday, a day that inmates could mingle, converse, smoke, play music, sing, cheer sports. And one of those sports was baseball. The league was established in Atlanta in 1912, and the idea behind allowing men to participate was wrapped up in the prison reform ideas of the time. And the idea of sports as being clean and manly and kind of wholesome activity. The Penitentiary League had eight teams. They were the Pirates, which was made up of people who worked in the cleaners, the library, or the barbers. The Tigers were men from construction detail. The Cubs were the cart drivers. Uh, the Yanigans worked in laundry and shoe and mail. The Mutts were the tailor shop, orchestra, and the hospital. The Athletics worked in the storerooms and the kitchen and the dining room. The Giants were stonecutters. And the Crackers were carpenters and worked in the powerhouse. In 1921, the inmates actually built a stadium and whole athletic field complex. It took them three months to do it. They had tennis courts, jumping pits, pole vaulting, discus. They even had a boxing ring. Famous sporting brands from the time donated, donated over $1,000 worth of equipment for them to use. The prison also established a newspaper called Good Words. Um, it was edited and printed by convicts, and it had four columns on one sheet. And it covered lots of pressing news, like the first issue, I think was 1912. And it had a piece by Robert Ladeau, who was head of the parole board, and he was talking about parole law. Uh, more reform ideas came alongside the newspapers and sports. They had changes in the dining room, where instead of sitting men in kind of one long bench. They put them in groups of eight. They did municipal concerts, uh, orchestra, choruses, and then in 1913 was one of the first times they showed a motion picture inside the federal penitentiary. More daring escapes occur at the very least every few years. In 1914, prisoners in the tuberculosis camp in the back area of the prison use a makeshift ladder to scale the wall. In 1919, two prisoners sawed through the bars and escaped through a skylight. Uh, they were recaptured in Louisville just four months later, but they escaped again three months later. Uh, this time they did it as a group of eight men, but they also used the same saw. In 1923, four convicts from the tuberculosis camp had evidently been digging a tunnel for months and finally reached 50 feet in length underneath the walls of the prison. So one night they crawl away, the prison staff is completely stumped as to where they put this dirt. I think there was six of them at left and three of them were eventually caught. By 1918, the prison was at human capacity and the U.S. government purchases about 1,250 acres in DeKalb County to operate a prison farm. So they send 200 of the most trustworthy inmates uh, there to relieve crowding. It's not really the end-all be-all because a decade later, the government contracts with Chatham County in Georgia to send 200 black men from the penitentiary to perform road work there. Now, at this point, the NAACP immediately protests, say, citing that this is exactly convict leasing, which has been outlawed, and this is discriminatory. Like, why are you only sending black men? And the penitentiary steps in and they're like, no, 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 this is nothing like convict labor. See, we don't get paid. We actually pay the convicts. I think it was like 50 cents a day. And oh, they, they only can work eight hours a day. So see, everything's fine. And oh, the only reason it's just black men is because Chatham County only has one facility and we can't mix the races. 
there was attempts to go to Chatham County. Um, they surveyed the prisoners' housing and meals and I apparently couldn't find anything legally wrong. And the, none of the prisoners wanted to be transferred back to the penitentiary. So it, it just was never fought and it ended up being used. The Department of Justice was created by Congress just a year after that, and then it was charged with the management and regulation of all federal penal and correctional institutions. At that time, that was 11 federal prisons. Um, by the end of 1930, the system had expanded to 14 with 13,000 inmates. By 1940, it was 24 institutions with almost 25,000 incarcerated people. In 1978, there was a newspaper quote about the federal penitentiary in Atlanta from a former inmate. And he says, quote, the pressures at the Atlanta pen are like those in no other prison. A lot of my friends won't touch banks, post offices, anything federal because they're afraid of being sent there. A person can get murdered just for having an argument. Not because somebody wants to murder, but because of the pressures, the boredom. Month after month, year after year, it starts grading away. You just go berserk. I'll never go back to Atlanta, end quote. A decade later, in 1987, the prison would have an infamous revolt. The federal government announced it would be deporting 2,500 Cubans detained in federal facilities in the United States. And so the Cubans of the Atlanta Penitentiary burned a factory at the prison. They took more than 100 hostages. They held off scores of federal agents. And the entire ordeal cost $35 million in damages and claimed the life of one Cuban inmate. It ended December 4th and remains the longest takeover of a federal prison in U.S. history. So there you have it, the history of Atlanta's federal penitentiary. Thank you all for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review in your podcast app, then head over to Patreon link in the show notes to find out how you can support the podcast. I hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.